You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Thank you, Dave, John. It's uh, indeed um, a focus on prayer this morning as we, as we have heard already and as we open up the Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, <clears throat> we are again uh, entering today uh, for a second time into the Paul the Apostle School of Prayer, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3 <clears throat> and verses 14 to 21. So would you stand with me if you would like to and turn uh, to Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably beyond all that we ask, or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. The concept that I'd like you to remember in your mind during this whole message is this, instead of kind of this shrinking down like this concept and minimizing, it's more of an expanding and growing concept. And it really comes down to the understanding of, of if, if we are our own reference point, then everything about our faith journey has to shrink down to us and our experience and our understanding. But if God or in Jesus Christ, He is our reference point, then everything about our faith journey has to be growing in its capacity, expanding in its ways, and stretching us beyond what we are presently all about. So that's the concept that we see as Paul enters into this time of prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21. Permit me, if you will, to just go into a little bit of a history lesson before we jump into the text. I read not too long ago a, a book by Francis Schaeffer, not too new a book. It's called How Should We Then Live? I think he wrote it back in the 70s. It was, it's a brilliant guide to... Uh, a kind of a companion guide to understanding the history of philosophy and theology, basically from the Roman Empire after Christ right until the 20th, end of the 20th century. And uh, I was interested, especially in the 1900s, which is really such a shaping influence upon the way you and I think, the 1900s. And, and so in that, in that uh, chapter, uh, Schaefer talks about the rise of what's called existentialism, and existentialism is basically the idea of viewing reason pessimistically and instead seeking to find meaning in your own experience. Frenchmen like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, German-born Martin Heidegger, Carl Jasper, some of these were the fathers of existentialism in the secular world. But as is so often the case, what takes place in the world crosses over and creeps into Christian thinkers, it creeps into the church. And so 
it wasn't long before we saw Christian thinkers also taking that leap into non-reason. And so men like uh, Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, Karl Barth, they began to drive a wedge between reason and non-reason. They referred to the downstairs of humanistic reason pessimistically where a man is just a meaningless machine. And, and, and given the fact that they had lived, they lived during the time of the first great war where over 37 million people died, civilians and military, and the second war where over 60 million died, that's the context that probably lent to their jaded view of humanity and reason and science and all that to help save us. And so they drove this wedge they called the downstairs, this pessimistic realm of, uh, of humanity as a machine. But the upstairs was the non-reason, the optimistic, wonderful kind of place that we can find meaning in our lives, in our experience. And so they, they adopted and they, in fact, created a theological existentialism that placed experience above reason. And so with the advent of this theological existentialism, liberal theology and then new orthodoxy or neo-orthodoxy was birthed. Liberal theology was embarrassed by the supernatural elements found in the Word of God in Scripture. And so they began to try and explain away everything supernatural. They, they drove a wedge between the historical Jesus and the miracle working and tried to explain away all these these miracles. Neo-Orthodoxy also saw the Bible as suspect, having many mistakes, and they, they believed that the Bible could become or contain some of the Word of God for you, but not in its historicity, but rather in a religious experience that you can have with, with God through the Bible. And so, so, you, so you see what happened is that the search for truth shifted from objective, rational, critical thinking to a subjective kind of experience orientation where faith is not in someone or in something, but faith is in faith itself. It's kind of like being in love with being in love. That's what happened. And so we see indeed in this, uh, instead of choosing to, to grow our capacity to to include in our minds and hearts this understanding of this incredible, immense God that's eternal, humanity chose to shrink God into the space of his own intellect and of his own experience. God then is made in my image as opposed to me being created in the image of God. The last uh, theologian I'll refer to is what some would regard as the most influential theologian of the 20th century, and his name is Paul Tillich. And uh, it's interesting, he was, he was an existentialist, and writings very, very impacting in the, in the 20th century is his sort of best work called The Courage to Be from 1952. You can almost see that on the bestseller today, The Courage to Be. I mean, we, we get that preached at us. Just be who you are. The courage to be. Find meaning. Find reality in your own experience. And Schaefer shares in his book that the story of when Tillich was dying. Paul Tillich was on his deathbed. Someone came to him and he said, they said to him, Sir, do you pray? Do you pray? And he said, No. 
but I meditate. That's, that's profound. Do you pray? No, but I meditate. You see, that's exactly where any kind of an existentialist belief will end you. If you and your experience are going to be the reference point, the centerpiece of your faith, then in the end you will be left with you and your experience, nothing else. You will, in other words, be left in the end without a prayer, but only a meditation. And that meditation will center around you and your experience instead of centering in the eternal God that has done incredible things to give you a life abundant. You see, friends, how this philosophy has so infiltrated our thinking today. This relativism that we live in that kind of accepts this idea that, well, that's okay for you, but it's not okay for me. That's right for you. That's truth for you, but it's not right for me. It's not truth for me. There's so much nonsense that gets passed off under the heading of philosophy and even theology. And so, friends, when I lie on my deathbed, I will not just be meditating. <laughs> I will be praying, and at that time, I will have more reason to pray than even the reason that I now know to pray every day of my life. And I will pray, pray more clearly and with more passion. Because, you see, prayer is always got a reason for, for approaching God. And that's what we see in Paul when he writes about prayer in Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, and you'll notice in chapter 1, for example, when the first time Paul references prayer, he starts by saying in verse 15 of chapter 1, For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith, I've not stopped giving thanks. Later on in chapter 3, verse 1, he's about to go to prayer again, but he gets sidetracked. But anyway, he starts by chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason. And then later on in verse 14 of chapter 3, today's text, he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. You see, every time Paul thinks about praying, he has a reason for praying. And that reason is connected to historical fact and truth, rational faith, and incredible spiritual experience. There is no wedge between non-reason and reason. There is no wedge. Because in the faith of Christ, they come together. And their mind and heart and faith expanding because it's the eternal God that enters our experience. You see, we've got to have a reason to pray outside of ourselves, friends. And that's what Paul teaches us in his school of prayer. He has started by talking about this vertical relationship that we've talked about, union with Christ, that leads to this grace bent down and outward and horizontally to communion with the saints. And, and as he continues on, that's really what he's praying about in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. He's getting us ready for chapter 4, verse 1, when all kinds of stuff is going to come down at us through his pen about walking in a manner worthy of the calling that you received. There's no way that you can walk in a manner worthy unless you get capacity growing in your life to live in a manner worthy. You cannot shrink down. If you're going to shrink down, you're never going to be worthy in your walk with God. But if you can expand, if God can enter your life, 
then indeed you can have capacity growing. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago when we looked at the first prayer. We differentiated between capacity praying and circumstantial praying. In one we say, Lord, change me for these circumstances. And in the other we say, Lord, change these circumstances for me. I, I tend toward too much circumstantial praying where I pray, Lord, change the circumstances. I think that's human. That's why Paul's teaching it because it's so superhuman and supernatural to pray the way that Paul's teaching us. See, what does it look like? Well, I pray, keep us safe prayers. That's a, it, it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction. I mean, keep us safe. Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, whatever which way. But I think uh, another way of praying that in a, in a capacity way would be, Lord, make us dangerous. Instead of this defensive stance in prayer, where, oh, God, just keep us safe. Don't let anything happen to my children. Don't let anything happen to, you know. Instead, it's this offensive way of saying, God, make us dangerous. Let us be known as much in hell as we are in heaven. You know, make it happen. Grow my capacity to impact my world so much, God, that, that people will wonder what you are up to through this little puny person. That's a capacity prayer. And that's the way Paul prays. So let's take a look at this scripture. You'll have a little blue insert in your bulletin that can follow along. And the reason that Paul goes to prayer, he has been unpacking in the first few chapters because he's been talking about how Christ has formed this new people. It's a, it's a new people between uh, Jew and Gentile, all ethnic groups, into one family, and he's the head, and, and this miracle is supposed to t- catch the eye of the, of the unsaved world as well as the spiritual realities that are looking down on the church. And because if the church is ever going to be the church and live it out, then, then we're going to need to grow in our capacity to do so. And so he prays a capacity prayer for the Ephesian believers. And the key word that's found in this text is the word power, used a few times. And the word power in the Greek text is the word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. And so he's praying, God, let the dynamite of God come in so that we can actually blow past what we're typically limited in in terms of our love and forgiveness and grace and abilities and just do what you want to do through these little creatures that you've made in your image. And so my outline, as you can see, is that without the enabling power, dunamis of God, we can't do four things. The first thing we can't do is we cannot have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. We can't. Jesus Christ will not come into the living room of your heart and dwell there. The word dwell here is the word to make permanent residence in. Jesus Christ will not come in to your heart and make permanent residence there if there's a whole bunch of other rival passions and gods that he has to compete with. He's a jealous God, and so it's, it's, it's not possible in human terms to, let, to make Jesus absolutely central in your life. Everything about you is, is absolutely posed to that. 
And so if you're going to be enabled by the power of God to do that, you need to pray, God, please come and do that in me, that I might have the power to let Jesus come in, put his feet up in my living room, and make himself at home. That's the, that's the idea of that word dwell. That's the place to begin. If Christ is not dwelling permanently in you, then we can't be expected that we're going to be enjoying all the blessings that are in Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 3. And so without the enabling power of God, no sinner could ever have a heart ready to receive the Lord of glory. And once received, there's no way that he's going to feel comfortable to be at dwelling place in our hearts. Maybe the best way to explain this is to imagine this. Imagine two clans that, that hate each other. The old Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Imagine two clans that hate each other, and you invite them both over to your home to have dinner. One evening, you just, you just invite them over, and they come in, and, and they're in your living room, and when the second clan comes in and sees the first clan sitting in your living room, I mean... All hell is going to break loose, or else one of the families is just going to leave. You see, what's the point? Is that neither of those clans is going to feel at home, like they want to dwell there, like they want to put their feet up and relax. And that's the picture of this word dwell, is that Jesus cannot dwell in our hearts through faith if there's other competition on things going on that, that he's got to kind of make room for that are in opposition to his spirit. He wants to dwell there unrivaled. That's the first idea, that we cannot have that without the enabling power of God. Secondly, we cannot, Paul prays, that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. That's not going to happen apart from the enabling power of of God. And Paul is mixing two metaphors. The word rooted comes from an agricultural term. Trees rooted and this, the, the grounded or established comes from an architecture term which has to do with the foundation. In Matthew 7.25, Jesus is saying that the wise man built his house upon the rock. That's the same word. He built it on the foundation of the rock. So Paul is saying that if you and I are going to be rooted and grounded in Christ's love, then you're going to need the enabling power of God in your life. It's not natural for you to have that love. You know, I remember, I, I remember the first time when I f first realized that there are some trees that have root systems that go as far deep as their branches go high. I was just fascinated with that. Similarly, just like in architecture, there are some buildings where piles and footings and foundation is just as much beneath the ground as there is this structure above the ground. See, that's a picture of your spiritual life. There is this internal, unseen part of you in your union with Christ. And then there is this external, very visible, seen part of you in your communion with everybody else in the church and your relationship with those outside the church. 
And if there is not this stability and nurturing that comes from your roots and your foundation deep in the union with Christ, you will not be fit to walk in a manner worthy of Christ in all of the external relationships that you have. See, you need the enabling power of God. Like, don't beat yourself up over this if you're not doing very well at that, friends. You were never expected to do well in it without the enabling power of Christ by His Spirit in your inner being. We get the best picture of this when we see Jesus, don't we? So many times when we see it in, in the Gospels, Jesus going alone with the Father. And He wasn't praying circumstantial prayers all the time. He was praying capacity prayers. You know, last week we, we talked at Easter, or Good Friday, about the Gethsemane prayer. That was a capacity prayer. He, he started into prayer in Matthew 26. It says that he started into prayer and he said, If it is possible, please take this cup from me. Circumstantial. But he ended the prayer by saying, If it's not possible, then your will be done. In other words, Lord, Lord, you, you do whatever, Father, is needed in me. To, to fit and to match your will so that I fully serve the purposes you have for me and I'll drink the cup you have for me. Thirdly, without the enabling power of God, in verses 18 and 19 we read that we cannot comprehend the many dimensions of the love of Christ. Paul prays that, that the Ephesian church would have to power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. The four dimensions. Why did Paul use the four dimensions instead of the three that we are used to living in space with, where height and depth would be the same dimension? And many have conjectures about it. It could be that, that it's, way, it's Paul's way of identifying the spiritual world in which the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over that. It could be that, that he is trying to convey that God's love reaches to the very four corners of the earth. Whatever was in Paul's mind, I'm not sure, but, but what certainly was in his mind is that this love of God is beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet, by his enabling power, we can conceive of it. His love is wide enough to embrace the whole world including White Ridge and Winnipeg and Garden Hill and India and Bolivia and wherever else. It's wide enough. It's long enough to last forever. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. It's deep or high enough to, to take us into heaven. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of what He has prepared for those who love Him. And it's deep enough to take the worst of sinners, and lift them out and give them eternal life. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners, and God used me because he wanted to make an example out of me so that anybody could know they're within his grasp. And Paul's in, often guilty of making up words, and here he's just grasping for words, and so he says this concept, which is nonsensical, really, eh? that you might know the knowledge that surpasses knowledge. <laughs> see, that's a capacity thing. And then fourthly, we see that the fourth reason why Paul prays 
is because without the enabling power of God, we could never be filled with all the fullness of God. Is Paul simply praying here that we would be filled to our capacity with God, or is he asking God to fill us beyond our capacity and indeed to increase our capacity? The story is told of a little boy who went to his mummy one day. And he said, Mommy, I love you six. I love you six? What is that all about? I love you six, Mommy. Well, it, means, it meant simply that that's as far as he could count. <laughs> He'd only got the six. You see, what is, what is it? What do you believe about your own faith and your heart and your mind and your being? Creating the image of God. Do you believe that you're this static, hard, parametered person that can't change? Or do you believe that your faith, your heart, your spirit is not a fixed container with one limited capacity, but rather you have the capacity to grow, to be filled with the fullness of God? And as your faith grows, our, your spiritual capacity to trust Him can grow way beyond what it was last year connected to your readiness to be filled with all of his fullness, connected to this idea that Jesus is at the center, at home in your living room, in your heart, with no rival gods. You know, there's a famous uh, Puritan pastor, Thomas Chalmers, who, who preached a sermon one, call, one time called the expulsive, the expulsive power of a new affection. You see, that's the idea, is that there's this new affection. Jesus Christ, the God of gods, comes into your life. The heavens can't contain Him, but somehow God says, I'm going to let Him be in your heart. He's going to expel every, every other secondary passion, desire, sin. He wants to be supreme. He wants to lead you into the fullness that God has for you. So that's what the dynamite of God can do. And that without the dynamite of God, you cannot have these things in your life. So we pray capacity prayers that God might stretch an, our capacity for these things so that it might be his capacity and his reference point, not ours. And then Paul ends this prayer the way he begins his whole book. It's with praise. And instead of looking at it as the reasons for prayer and without the God's power, you won't have these things... He, he turns it and he says, but with God's power, this is what you can have. Verses 20 and 21. With God's power, he is able to do more than you could ask or imagine. This is the passage that Tim and his prayer team chose for our, our building project. These two verses, 20 and 21. You see, with the power of God, you can, you can do, and he can do in you, more than you could ask or even imagine. Once again, we see this word dunamis. He is able, that's the word dunamis, to be, do more than we could ever ask or think. Immeasurably more, he says. The word immeasurably is this highest form of comparison. If you wanted to literally translate, you could say, he is able to do infinitely more. This is mind-stretching. Have you ever known, seriously, a quick, serious question, have you ever known what it is like to pray and to get an answer that's more than what you asked for. Have you ever prayed and then got an answer that was more than what you asked for or even could think of or imagine? 
Have you ever had a prayer like that? Where God just blew you out of the water with his answer? See, if you're a praying person and trusting God, I think that probably you've had that experience several times over, but maybe you haven't noticed it. Maybe you haven't noticed the answer to your prayer has actually been way beyond what you thought the prayer answer had to be. Because you see, God loves you and His purposes for you are so precious, He he will not confine Himself and His power to just you. When He's got this much for you, you see. So He's going to give you not what you ask for sometimes, but far beyond what you ask for or could even imagine. I was thinking of this earlier this morning as I was going over the message and I was thinking, I've got to share some illustrations and you know, one, one that just blows me away is when we were in Bolivia and finally the Lord was kind of getting us on track with we had to leave Bolivia and go back to Canada. It was a, re- a wrestling time. I, I didn't want to do that at first. But once we had settled, this is what God wanted. Then, then I had to say, okay, God, and we started asking God for things. Well, God, you know, we're going to have to find a ministry for me and a job for Pat and, and we're going to have to find a home, and where are we going to live? And we determined that God, in the midst of that, was saying He's going to give you this season of time to launch your kids and to say goodbye to your parents. We've been seven years without them, you know. I was asking for things, but in the last four or five years, I look at what God has done. He's gone way beyond all that we could ask or imagine. We had this incredible finishing well with the two dads, and we buried them. We've watched over and cared for the two moms. We've seen our daughter get married. We've seen our boys grow, go through the, the post-secondary school. God gave me this church as a, to a pastor. God gave Pat a job. Got all the kids moved back to Winnipeg. I, mean, I can keep going on and on. I mean, way beyond. Way beyond. You ever had that? But sometimes the asking and the receiving doesn't go the beyond the way you want it to. Sometimes you ask for something and, and God's answer is not. It's, it's definitely beyond and it's be, definitely more, immeasurably more, but it's, it's not the way you want. That's hard. That's a lot harder. Doug, Kevin, and I went over on Friday afternoon to have communion with Alf and Marie Bell at their home. They've been unable to get out to services and had a great time of prayer and worship. And after the Lord's Supper, I I turned to Marie and I said, Marie, what's your favorite hymn? And she said, without even blinking an eye, she said, more love to thee, O Christ. So we found it in the hymn book and Kevin played it on the guitar, and we sang it. I had a hard time getting through verse 3, though. Verse 3 says, Let sorrow, let sorrow do its work. Come grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. You see, we don't get the 
We don't get it sometimes the way that God chooses to answer that prayer to give us more than we ask or imagine. Mel and Daryl Penner shared with me, shared with us pastors some time ago that they were at a stage in their life of praying that God would do, use them more for his glory. And it wasn't long before both of them were diagnosed with these things that they're struggling with. I'll tell you, i tell you something, God is using them more. What a gracious God. But his answers are not always the more than we could ask or imagine the way we think. And he says also in this scripture that he's able not only to do more than we ask or imagine, but he is able also to do whatever it takes to bring himself glory through our own lives, through the church. This conglomerate group of people that don't always get along the best and don't always shine the way they should shine, but he is able to get glory for himself through us. As John Stott says, since the power comes from him, the glory must go to him. You know that intuitively if you're walking with Jesus. And then this whole passage ends with that wonderful word. You know the word? What is the word? It's in the Greek text just like it is in the English text. How does it end? Verse 21. Amen. 129 times in the New Testament. Most of them used by Jesus. When he would say, Truly, truly, I say to you. Amen, amen, I say to you. See, amen is a very simple little word. It simply means, I affirm this. I say yes to this. That's why we end our prayers with amen, because we're saying, Yes, God, please. That's why you guys do say amen and during my sermon so often. <laughs> amen. Because <laughs> the truth resonates and you say yes. That's how Paul finishes this. And what's this prayer all about? It's all about preparing us for chapter 4. It's all about preparing us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. Let me pray for us as we get together here and, and let's have the worship team come to, to lead us. But let's pray together. Would you bow with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. And oh God, this morning we, we come, Lord, to you and we, we ask you, Lord, to forgive us when we have confined you to our own little space-time limitations Instead of recognizing that you want to grow our capacity to love and to forgive and to, to know you and to, to share you with others. God, we, we come in confession, but we also come in thanksgiving. Because we know that, Lord, your power, your dynamite is, in, is able to, to make us fit for the task of bringing you glory and walking with you. So, Lord, lift us up onto higher ground and lead us, Lord, onward so that we might reflect to the world around the kind of God that you are, we ask in Jesus' name.